Youthscape podcast. Well, hi everybody, and welcome back to the Youthscape podcast, and especially to our culture special, and that is culture spelled with a C H A on the end. So, uh, welcome. Isn't that an armbred? <laughs> That's not an armbred. Yeah, they did, but um, I'm very excited about our culture special. So, we're going to be talking particularly today about two. Uh, films. One is a film, one is a Netflix series. We're talking about The Shack, which has just come out in the UK, and also 13 Reasons Why. Uh, and, and looking at how national conversations, global conversations, are sparked by stories that are out there that we're all talking about. So, how do we engage with these stories and youth workers? And, and what does it say to our young people about the world that they're growing up in? And what is it that we need to understand so we can have conversations about life and play? So, we're going to start with The Shack. Brilliant. Uh, which came out on Friday in the UK, uh, and uh, you and I got to see it. Let's repaint a little picture here. So yeah. We were so out of place. We it were. was so out of place. We went to BAFTA to a glittering, star-studded UK premiere, didn't we? And we did. And Mar- the funny thing is, Martin's like, "Oh, last minute, Rach, can you come?" So I, I totally got the view that he'd asked his wife. She'd say, "I've got, I've got better things she to do." She did not want to go. And he'd asked Chris. He'd asked like everyone else. And eventually, he said, "I'll invite Rachel." Yeah. And I said, "Oh, what do we wear?" And you're like, oh, "I'll just wear, you know, cash." So I had a pair of jeans and a dress over the jeans, which is kind of my thing at the moment. But it wasn't high glitz. And we walk into BAFTA. Yeah. I was so frustrated. I mean, I had given you the address <laughs> of BAFTA. <laughs> That's great. That That's all I needed. That's yeah. all I needed, obviously. What was, what was fascinating, uh, and I'm sure people, it won't be a huge leap of the imagination to picture this, um, but we uh, approach a room full of people quite differently. So you, you are the sort of, you love a party, I don't do, you? You sir, do. You're like a butterfly. You, you sort of, you just spend yeah. a few moments. You're brilliant at that thing of, of saying hi and then moving on. Yes. You're brilliant at that. I can't do that. I get pinned in a corner with the person no one else wants to talk to, and I'm stuck there for two hours. Right? Thank goodness there was a film screening starting. But I, I literally moved myself into the um, uh, into the corner where the cloakroom the cloak And I looked like a cloakroom attendant. And at one point, you were talking to somebody, and actually you had stood behind. You know those little rope um, like cordons. cordons? You'd actually got yourself behind. Yeah, so I just went and got him a drink and said, "Come on, Martin, it's going to be okay." So, and it was okay because actually we saw some wonderful people, Ali, Ali Yes, we did. Lovely Pete and. uh, It was like the Christian version of Hello Magazine. It was. It it was really, really lovely, Pete Winter and Sarah. So it was great. But what was so interesting was seeing a book come to life on a screen that was so. When it came out, it was controversial, it was really moving, people loved it or hated it, and then, and then sort of all those emotions happened again when we yeah. saw the film in front of us. There's, there is some fantastic scenes in yeah. The Shack. Um, I, for my liking, taste, there's too many sunflowers dotting around the place, and I think that was probably my struggle with it. But I, there were some characters in there that are just, they, it, it, sti- it stayed with me, it lingered with me, particularly the, the guy that played Jesus. I mm. just found him absolutely captivating mm. and, and it really I revisited that night and the next few days who is Jesus like what, mm. what did he look like and, and what did I what did I experience when I'm talking to Jesus it was just so profound for me so if you're not familiar with The Shack uh, it's the story written by uh, uh, Paul Young mm. for his um, his family for his family essentially yeah. for his grandchildren to try and explain suffering and the persons of the Trinity uh, and he gets a lot of criticism for his dodgy theology. But you've got to remember, he was just trying to write something for some, for some children in his own family. He wasn't expecting it to go on and sell millions and millions of copies. 
but it became this phenomenon. And the book is basically about a, a man in America who uh, uh, loses his daughter. It's a great uh, she's, uh, she, they're, they're on a camping trip. Yeah. She disappears. It turns out she's actually been uh, abducted yeah. and killed. Uh, and he descends into this spiral of, um, of great sadness. Mm. And uh, he asks, he begins to ask the big question, where was God in all of that? And then God uh, himself or herself or themselves uh, reach out to, uh, to this, this character, Mac, um, and, uh, and and then sort of invite him to meet with them personally. Here's a clip. There isn't really a clip. I just always wanted to say that. Oh, I just want to say, here's a clip. But there isn't really a clip. Mac, Can we get a clip? Can we make a clip? Yes, we can make a There's clip. There's no clip. So... The film sort of starts with him in his everyday life, and then the second half of the film is him back at the shack, and then we enter this conversation with the Trinity, and it, and it shifts gear at that point, doesn't yeah. it? And we meet the Father, Papa, and we meet the Spirit, and we meet the Son, and we have these really interesting little moments, and, and he meets wisdom in a cave. But it, we're asking the big questions, and they go there with the questions. He keeps mm -hmm. saying, where were you? Where were you when I needed you, when my daughter needed you? Where were you? And I think it's going to raise, um, outside the Christian community, we all ask these questions. This is a universal question. What is out there? Why am I here? What? Who? Who made me? What's my purpose? And I think this film, I really, my prayer really is, is that this film will raise to the surface those dormant questions within our culture about what actually is this mm. all about. We kind mm. of are distracting ourselves to death with the world around us when there are such massive questions that need to be asked, and they are scary questions. Mm. But they're important questions to ask. So this isn't really a youth film. This is not going to be a film that's watched by lots of young people, I would imagine. But but those of us who are youth workers, we do have to take care of our own souls. Mm -hmm. And these are our questions. And they're the questions that we, we field from young people as well. And that universal question that you're describing mm -hmm. of like, uh, uh, why does God, if, if there's a God, why would he allow such pain, such brokenness? Why am I here? What's the point in it all in a world that's so broken? Those are the questions that we struggle with, they're the questions that we uh, will face from young people, especially when they themselves hit moments of crisis mm -hmm. and personal tragedy. So it's a really helpful film to help, as you say, sort of just um, uh, uh, cycle through some of these questions and, mm -hmm. and ask them in a fresh way. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so and I, I, I met Stuart. Yes, you went to meet the producer, director. Director. director yeah. uh, I, I went to see Stuart Hazeldean, who is the uh, director of the film, and uh, I went to meet him, we should say, in a quite noisy London coffee mm, shop. Mm. Uh, I tell you what, film directors know the coolest places to meet. So it was, it was very cool. I'm very glad he paid. And, uh, and so we went and had a cup of coffee and we talked a little bit about what he was trying to do with the movie. And so this time we do have a clip. So there is a clip now. Uh, and, uh, and this uh, is uh, me talking to uh, Stuart uh, in one of London's exclusive pub, cafe, restaurant type places. Um, excuse the background. The Youthscape Podcast. So the first thing is just assuming people know nothing about you. How did you? You're a you know British screenwriter. You specialise in science fiction and fantasy. Um, how did you end up directing a thirty million dollar budget version of the of, of the Shack? Well, there's no one reason. Um, I think it was partly that. Uh, I'm a writer and a practicing Christian, and I uh, was familiar with the shack. I had been offered 
the opportunity to adapt the shack into a, a film script years before uh, when the book was a sort of a 2 million selling hit rather than a 22 million selling phenomenon. Uh, and at the time there was a director I knew who wanted to direct a sort of $5 million faith-based, proper faith-based version of it uh, without any studio involvement. And uh, it, I had heard about the book being discussed within my, the church I attend. It started to you know, get some traction. And uh, it was an opportunity to read it. So I read it and I thought, well, um, I love the concept. I love the story of the, the pain of, of Max's loss and the, 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 the way that he meets God and the representation of God as a, as a filmmaker, whether screenwriter or director. Your, your problem when you're dealing with, with God is that God is invisible, he's a spirit, and film is a visual medium. Uh, and this was one particular concept in which you could actually visualize God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Trinity in an indeterminate neutral ground between earth and heaven, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was, was, uh, was sort of catnip for a, for a filmmaker with an interest in religious themes. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was also a very talky book, you know, there was, it was a bit less of a story and a bit more of a theological treatise or reflection than mm-hmm. I expected when I first started reading. So I, I very quickly thought, oh, this is more like The Great Divorce than it is like Narnia. Yeah. Uh, and I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, but at the end of it, I didn't immediately have a strong vision for how it could be a movie. Um, and then a few years later, very experienced producer Gil Netta, who made Life of Pi on the Blind Side, I found out that he had the rights. Um, and I had written something for him ten years previously as a writer, so I already knew him. We were just chatting about um, doing some writing work on one of his other projects, and he mentioned that he had this thing called The Shack, and I said, oh, yeah, I know that. So um, uh, he said, well, maybe you want to read it, just give me your thoughts. He wasn't offering anything to me. So I read it, and I was really impressed with what the writer at the time, John Fusco, had done. I thought the first half of it worked really well up until Matt got to The Shack. After that, I thought it was still pretty good, but it was still, uh, it had some of the talky problems of the book and the pacing was an issue uh, and then uh, about nine months later the opportunity to direct it arose and I happened to be in LA met the producer and told him how I would direct it and there was a new draft by then by some other writers Stephen Cretton and Andrew Lanham which I thought had taken it another step forward and now it was sort of 80-90% there and I, it just was like it was like a really good photograph that was just a bit blurred or a jigsaw with a few puzzle pieces missing and I just felt like I knew what to do to fill in those last puzzle pieces and sharpen it up. Um, and Gil put me in front of the studio, I, I pitched my, my take and, and they all agreed that I was the guy. Uh, so I think it was, you know, that was the process that happened. And making my first film, Exam, uh, I wouldn't say Exam tonally is a great audition piece for The Shack, but it showed that I could make a movie. Mm. So I needed to have that, you know. But really it was my take on the material and what they needed from a director that made me the right guy. And I felt that I was the right guy. You know, you need, I, I need to feel like I'm the best guy in town to direct something. You know, if, if there's something where I feel like 10 other guys could do it better than me, yeah. even if I'm being offered it, I tend to back off. Yeah. Because I need to really feel like I'm the guy. And I just couldn't think of any other director who would be interested and available who, who could understand the Shaq the way that I could. Did you think the Shaq really needed a Christian director to do it justice? Um... 
I don't know. Uh, I think it definitely helps. It definitely helps to really understand that because um, I really felt that Gil understood uh, what the story was about and the emotional journey of the story. And we had Brad Cummings, who was one of the collaborators on the book, uh, there in all the creative meetings with developing the script to be that sounding board and that advisor as to you know why something was written in the book the way it was written. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he had a lot of ideas too that ended up in the movie. So we did have a lot of other, you know, quality control and theological, you know, control uh, elements around. But um, I still felt like it, it would help if the director had that too. And there are moments on set when, you know, it's just you, you can't have too many expert opinions. And the director is still at the centre of everything. He's still the eye of the storm when you're making the film. And the actors needed to feel that the director understood it. You know, the actors need to draw confidence from their director. And if the director doesn't really understand... There were other directors who weren't uh, religious, who were interested in it, and they liked certain aspects of the story, but the important, some of the important theological aspects they didn't understand. And I think there was just a feeling that they wouldn't be able to bring everything to the table that was needed. So, yeah, I think it was. I waited a long time after exam to find the right movie uh, with the right subject matter at the right budget level to be that next career step for me. Yeah. It took like six years. Well, normally it takes two or three. And for me, but for me, I just knew the shack was it. I'm like, this is the one. You know, and for whatever difficulties might face us, I just felt like I had to push ahead and do it. And you will have been aware of the sort of theological controversies around the book. Mm -hmm. When you approached it, did you think, I'm not even going to wade into that? Or did you think, I'm going to try and mitigate some of those, you know, less clear, maybe, the bits I didn't agree with? You know, did you, did you try and meddle with the theology of the book? or? or uh, I wouldn't say we tried to meddle with it, but I would say we tried to focus and clarify uh, in certain places. Because, you know, when you put a book out there, you haven't had a reaction. And then you get a reaction to certain things, and it gives you, the movie gives you a second opportunity to focus and clarify those things. Just through the act of compression and conflation that comes with every adaptation, if you, if you turn the actual shack book into a straight movie, it'll be 10 hours long. So a lot of stuff is going to fall away, mm. and movies are like haiku poetry. So you, you, a lot of sort of side avenues that the author could wander down, we just simply don't have time. Yeah. So a lot of that would fall away, and we just have to follow Max's central emotional journey and his central issues with God, Papa. Um, so if someone has an issue with the fact that God is portrayed as uh, a black woman, I don't really have a lot of time to engage with that kind of um, yeah. with that kind of shallow objection, yeah. um, because if you read the book and if you listen to the movie, there's a perfect explanation for why God chooses to present Himself in such a way, um, and God presents Himself in way that that way in the Bible. I mean, what is what is the incarnation of Christ? if not God making himself relatable to us mm. and coming down to our level. Mm. And if you really think that God is a white dude with a beard, uh, then you have a whole other set of issues. Mm. <laughs> I'm not even going to dialogue with you on I mean, th there, was, there was an element of, of just of straight racism in some people's issues. But in terms of like honest theological objections, I do respect that. Uh, and, you know, I think the big central question of the, of the book and the movie is, who do you think God is? What do you think God's character is? Well, the most fascinating thing for me about the, about the experience of watching the film was that given how relatively little screen time he has compared to Mac, say, my 
my attention is always on Jesus the yeah. moment he walks onto the screen. Now, is that because you cast just you completely lucked out with like the best bit of first time casting ever? Yeah. Or is there something more significant than that about about the role of Jesus, about the, the, the nature of Jesus himself? So it was important that Jesus was sort of more accessible. Uh, you know, there's something mysterious about the Holy Spirit, mm. and Mac has a real issue with Papa, who he blames for all the pain in his life. So just by dint of that, yeah. Jesus is more relatable. But yeah. we wanted yeah. to, to push that even further and have Jesus be um, your friend, you know. Mm. And so that was already there in the story, mm. uh, in the book story, but uh, I pushed it a little bit further with the development of the script by uh, changing the way that Mac discovers the shack and having Jesus be the person who leads Mac into the presence of Papa because I was aware of the criticisms that Jesus seemed a bit reduced and so I wanted to strengthen that to buttress it so Jesus leading Mac into the presence of Papa I thought was that pretty orthodox theology uh, and that's that strengthens the, the narrative and then we needed to find the right guy and uh, Avraham Aviv Alush was the right guy he was he was not just our first choice he was kind of our only choice for that role he just stood head and shoulders above everyone else he had this amazing smile and this infectious warmth about him that um, both on a casting tape and in reality just caused everybody to want to hang out with him um, and I love the fact that we we put the first Israeli Jew on screen as playing Jesus that I'm aware of the Youthscape podcast I don't know how to phrase it, but Christian movies generally suck, right? So why yes. doesn't this one suck? Um, if you spoke to some critics, they wouldn't actually see a difference between this movie and some other movie. Yeah. I mean, there are other Christian movies that you know I'm not such a fan of that were scoring in the 40, 50% region. We yeah. scored yeah. in the 20s, yeah. you know, as far as some critics were concerned. And I asked myself why. Yeah. I think it was because some critics literally didn't like the sheer amount of theological discussion, even yeah, in the movie yeah, version. Yeah. Even the conflated version was just too much for them. Yeah. And they just didn't care. Yeah. But I think, you know, for those within the, the Christian world who are used to these movies, generally they do feel that The Shack is, is a better movie than some of those others. Um, and I think it, the reasons for it are we had a really strong concept, we had a very cinematic concept of the wish fulfillment of meeting God. Um, it was, there, was, there was a specificity to that and a pro, it was primal. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, what if I could fly, what if I could time travel, what if yeah. I could be 12 again? Yeah. The Christian yeah. version of that is what if I could meet God and have a conversation and ask why suffering? Yeah. Why did I lose my child? Yeah. There's something really powerful to that. So the bones of it were yeah. really strong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had some really good writers. John Fusco, Destin Crit and Andrew Lanner were really strong screenwriters. Gil has an amazing track record as a producer. You know, it's not by accident that he made Life of Pi and Blindside, My Best Friend's Wedding, uh, the Naked Gun movies. Like, he has an amazing CV. Um, and he's really good at guarding the emotion and what's, what's important about a book and shepherding that to the screen. Uh, and neither Gil nor myself saw this as a faith-based movie. We didn't reference those other movies. I don't think Gil or I have even watched any of those movies. I, I haven't. So I, I wasn't really, we, we, were, we were working to a different standard. We just yeah. wanted to work as a movie movie. And there's a bit more grit in it as well, isn't there? So, so I was surprised, considering that many of your audience will be, you know, people in the Bible Belt, yeah. that you went for it with some of the yeah. missing stuff. Yeah, and that's with, I think, you know, having honesty about the darkness of life is something uh, that it tends to go hand in hand with good art. 
Um, it worked in the Psalms. It worked growing up for me in U2's music. You know, I saw Bono recently sit with Eugene Peterson and talk about, uh, you know, what, how a lot of Christian art isn't honest enough and you have to really be honest with God about your anger and your emotions, your, your, your frustrations. And that's one of the things that I think the Shack does is it's pretty honest about those things. Whether you agree with the answers or find the answers sufficiently, ask those questions and at least attempts to give answers that might make you think, you know, whether you accept them or not. Um, so I think you can't make a, a, a Disneyfied version of, of Christianity in, in your art and expect it to come out good. Um, and I've always been hyper honest as a, as a, as a believer. Like I've always been a, a massive questioner. I used to storm out of Sunday sermons at my Baptist church when I was 15 and 16 and pace around in the, in the side room arguing with God about why services ran the way they did and why we, we took so many things on trust without analysing them and without asking why we were doing them. We just did them simply because of tradition and it just didn't feel like there was enough intellectual rigour or questioning or creativity going on. So I, I, I just never, I never swam with the Christian cultural stream. I don't really listen to Christian bands pretty much only listened to YouTube growing up when it came to Christian things. Yeah. So I watch regular movies, I listen to regular music, and I'm just not a ghetto subculture guy. Um, and that's important, not just yeah. in that area, but you know, I grew up loving uh, Ridley Scott and being a big fan of Alien and Blade Runner. And I remember as a teenager being blown away when he was interviewed, and, and uh, he, they said, how did you make such great science fiction classics? You must be a huge sci-fi fan. And he said, I was never into sci-fi at all. I never read or really watched sci-fi. Um, but then he made Alien and Blade Runner. So I just thought, you know, to make something great in a particular genre, you don't necessarily have to be um, soaked in uh, all the, the antecedents of that genre. But sometimes it's important to bring a freshness to the genre and to bring an understanding of other disciplines in order to contribute to that genre. So I don't think that because you listen to all these Christian bands and you watch all these Christian movies, that, that increases the fact that you're going to bring nothing new to the genre. It's better if you're playing in other sandboxes, and then you can push it forward. So six, six to seven years to go from exam to the shack, what do you, what do you want to do, what are you going to do after that? Well, you never quite know what's going to come next, because, you know, uh, one day you think it's going to be one movie, and then the next day an amazing script comes through your letterbox. Uh, there are a few projects that other people have that I'm chasing, um, but something that I've been developing now for seven or eight years is an adaptation of uh, a novel by Charles Williams, who is one of the Inklings, along with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, uh, called All Hallows' Eve, which was the last novel he wrote before he died, and that's a ghost story set during the Blitz. There's a lot of spiritual themes in it, a lot of sort of light versus dark, God versus the occult. Um, but it's a very different tonal movie from The Shack. You know, it's very sort of dark and almost like a, uh, a spiritual version of The Third Man in, in, yeah. its, in its vibe, its tonality. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to get financing together for that. What I'm not hearing from you is that you're now going to be plundering the shelves of Christian bookstores to see what's the next Shack, so you can make the next faith-based... I don't have any interest in that. The Utescape Podcast! strikes me about some of the conversation you have with Stuart is he, he's very generous with um, people's interpretation of the book, they're going to bring their own to it, but I, I think he's 
really intentional about asking questions. And when you imagine God, what do you see? And, and you're right, this is not a film that young people in their droves are particularly going to go to. It's about a man losing a daughter. But the themes of suffering and crisis and pain are so, so key, aren't they, in, in adolescent experience. And, and this next... Uh, net, the Netflix series we're going to talk about, 13 Reasons Why, is very specifically aimed at unpacking uh, the journey for young people around mental health, particularly around suicide and suicidal thoughts. Uh, so 13 Reasons Why is 18. I, I, I really struggled with that because I felt um, that that was a disservice to the young people they're trying to reach and connect with. It. Actually, there's some horrific scenes in there that yeah. are so brutal. But um, we need to be watching this. Our young people are watching this. It's yeah, they don't. There's, there's no way on them. Netflix. No. They're not. They're not really going to stop fifteen-year-olds from watching no. Thirteen Reasons Why, and and most parents won't even be aware that that tiny little eighteen certificate logo on there. So so we've got to accept, even though it's an eighteen, that doesn't mean very much in terms of the young people we work with. Absolutely, and and, and the background of the story is Hannah. She recently moves to this town. She makes some friendships. She works in the local cinema. And uh, in the opening episode, we discover that she's committed suicide. Um, and she sends 13 tapes to 13 people as people who are kind of partly responsible, in her view, of, of why she's committed suicide. And, and I, I was watching it, and I've only watched a few episodes. So there might be some folks uh, listening who, who've watched a whole load more and have a way more understanding of the nuances. But what really struck me was actually not so much Hannah's story. So she's the girl who, who takes her own life and sends these tapes. Um, it's Clay, it's the boy, and, and initially we see this whole scenario of teenage suicide through the eyes and, and the kind of the ashened face of this boy Clay who just cannot come to terms with what's happened. And then he receives this tape and the amount of guilt and shame that he receives knowing that he is one of the 13 reasons why Hannah took a life. And actually, when I was watching this, I began to... I began to get so angry on behalf of teenage boys because I suddenly thought there's a myth, I think, in culture of the teenage lads. And I sometimes maybe push this myth forward a bit with the work that I do, sometimes inadvertently, that the teenage boy is a bit senseless and he's a bit kind of driven by his animal instincts. And, and he needs to be more in tune, particularly with the teenage girl kind of landscape of emotional well-being. And I felt it was completely awful that Clay is internalising all of this and he has no idea he's, you know, and I think as, as it unfolds probably we find out more a bit about their relationship but I, I just went away with a real heaviness about the teenage boys in our culture. Yeah, yeah, and, and actually later episodes do do that more so uh, just to ruin it because I don't I don't think we actually recommend people watch the whole no, thing no, at no. all. Um, to be aware but, of the story. But just to ruin it a little bit, um, so I think she's, she kind of absolves Clay a little bit um, through, yeah. of, of, of blame partway through. Um, but some of the other characters, the teacher, uh, and, and there's a, a, a male character who's, who's a rapist in it as well, are portrayed really, really badly. And really, Clay is the, is the short shining light. Mm -hmm. um, and even he, as you say, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's not particularly portrayed positively. So I think, I think without, you know, I'm not getting on my sort of uh, uh, high horse here, but I do think there is a danger that we just really demonise teenage boys. Mm -hmm. And I think the show doesn't help doesn't help with that. that, yeah. But to get back to the, the conversation around suicide, I, I found that our self-harm team actually were very helpful here in helping unpack. Um, and one of the things that they talk about is how um, if a young person has a, a friend or someone they know who commits suicide, mm. then uh, it increases their risk mm. of committing suicide. And I think if 
series like this where you do, I think for young people, develop a real affinity with the key character, Hannah. Mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, you feel she's your friend. And I, I just, I'm questioning really the, the wisdom of putting this story like this out there. Have mm -hmm. you seen the suicide? Mm -hmm. I well, think. I think we should talk about that. Yes, because that's utterly appalling. Yeah, um, yeah. So in the final episode, uh, towards the end, very much, you know, through, looking at it through an entertainment television perspective, it is the finale, it's the season finale, it's the big uh, climactic moment. They show in absolute full gory detail, in, life the, time, in, in, in real, real time, time uh, the death of this character who all these uh, uh, teenage viewers have become so connected to. And so you watch her get into the bath and actually take her own life in a very brutal way. And you watch her, you literally watch okay, her die. Mm. And and then and then it stays, it still stays as her parents come in and find her. Mm. And it's just horrific. And I can't imagine, I don't know anything about mental health really, but they talk about how um, suicidal ideation mm. uh, happens as a result of seeing uh, suicide happen on screen. And there can't have been a more brutal depiction on, on screen ever than what you see in 13 Reasons Why. Mm. It is utterly unrelenting they don't hold back and i think they think they're being edgy mm. and probably a bit cool by showing it i think it's horrible mm. i think it's really dangerous absolutely and i think it's it's so important that we talk about suicide reports it's so important that in our youth work and our youth ministry amongst our friendships that we talk about despair we talk about hopelessness and about the fact that for many things we work with they are they are wondering what do I do with this pain and who do I talk to? I think the problem with the series is not that it wants to talk about suicide. I'm all, I'm all for you know dramas that raise these really important issues. The problem is that at, that at no point particularly do we get the message that, that actually she could have reached out and mm. had help. There were people around her that had mm. she reached out could have helped her. And, and I think that's the dangerous message in this, that somehow with, with this suicide being the climax of the series, it, it kind of deifies that this is the ultimate answer to pain. And, and I think the other challenge I found, Martin, is, is that she her, you hear her voice through the whole series. Mm. She's present. Well, actually, if you take your life, yeah. that's the end, isn't it? And mm. we remember people and they are in our memories and we and, and that carries on. But actually, this is an unrealistic expectation, I feel, mm. of what mm. suicide potentially would give in terms of legacy. So I feel, as someone who often sits and talks with young people and has young people who I, who I work with who have been on Suicide Watch, who have um, really been facing this stuff, I, I feel that I, I would be absolutely saying to them, let's talk about this stuff, but if you're going to watch this... Mm. Watch it with somebody who knows you and loves you, where you can talk about this afterwards. Mm -hmm. I feel that this this series will inadvertently be a trigger, yeah. potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you don't want to sit here and just be moaning about no. the way conversations happen, but I think there has to be a line between edginess yeah. and responsibility. Yeah, I, well, I totally agree with you. The, the concept behind this, the worldview behind this whole show, is revenge, actually. It's, it's you know, that if you boil it down, this is about a girl who has been... Uh, you know, suffered all sorts of terrible trauma, and so at the end of her life, she she doesn't just take her own life; she turns it into this massive act of revenge, which implicates all these people. And basically, she wants to ruin their lives. Mm -hmm. She wants to put her death on the conscience of all these people who've wronged them. Now, some of them have done atrocious things. Yes. Some of them have have maybe bullied her by text message, mm. and, and, and somehow the show seems to equate all those things and say, if you have, if someone has wronged you, mm -hmm. then you can, you can pour ultimate revenge on them in some way, and I, I, I don't like the thought 
process behind that, and also what it might um, trigger in in young people as well. That they they think they can they can do that to each other. Like, is, is there a narcissism that's fed with this? Do you feel well, like the whole show is is about yeah. narcissism mm -hmm. as well? Because the 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 thing starts with. Uh, an image of the girl's locker, yes. and this yeah. these two friends who take a selfie in front of the hashtag, locker. Hashtag never forget. Never forget yeah. You know, and and you and you straight away that concept is brought in, but actually it is kind of narcissistic to have the whole thing told through the lens of this of this person. Um, there's a lot of dysfunction in there, but the, you know I keep coming back to this. The fundamental thing is don't think that the show or the book that was that was written mm -hmm. that, that that it's based on were created to spread positive messaging, or they're not, there's not a charity behind this. This is Netflix mm. trying to make a bunch of money mm. by engaging a new generation of paying customers. And, uh, and boy, they're gonna do it. Yeah. So the whole thing is set up for television. It's entertainment, it's misery-based entertainment. Yeah. And we mustn't lose sight of that and think that this is an important and bold uh, you know, challenge to our culture. So what, what, is, a, what is a pushback then? In terms of that, I think that information is vital, and that information needs to be disseminated. I think mm. as we talk with our young people about this, what is the purpose of this series? Mm. Give mm. young people a sense of being able to create some distance yeah. between the series and their own very important story and emotions. What might be some other pushbacks or, or, or kind of words of hope that we could bring in with our young people? I suppose around that. That's why I asked about narcissism because I think mm. um, obviously young people taking care of their emotions is vital, having that opportunity to really stop and think and listen and be taken seriously is vital. But I wonder as well if a pushback is actually looking out to each other and reaching mm. out to mm. each other and amplifying each other and, and that is a key virtue isn't it yeah. in kind yeah. of discipleship that we are laying down our agendas mm. for mm. others, yeah. we're about yeah, elevating yeah, yeah. them above ourselves. Yeah. So that discipline of submission, the humility yeah. that we talk about in open you know, There we go. Yeah, we right. haven't planned that, but that's... No, that's no, no, but that is it. It is yeah. about putting yeah. each other first and, and yeah. learning in a narcissistic culture to submit to one another's agendas. And, uh, of course, uh, I'll be producing uh, my new book, 13 Reasons Why Jesus Loves You, <laughs> which I bet that already exists. Can I tell you right now, I bet that already poster. exists. It's a poster. Do you know there are like 50 different books called Fifty Shades of Grace? Where loads of people have the same idea at the same time. Turns ah, out, well, if not people so pick clever. up and read it, I love it. But I suppose, on a serious note, if we're working with young people who are having suicidal thoughts, there are some fantastic organisations and charities. Yeah. So there's Think Twice, there's a self harm team here, there's Mind and Soul. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really important that we are very quick to pick up those cues with young people, give them space to be talking about these things, and reminding them that at any point there are many ways to reach out for help. Yeah. And I think that's so important. This. This film, what it shows, is an ending that doesn't have to be your ending. Um, Absolutely. And there are a couple of great uh, articles about this on uh, our website, selfharm.co.uk. Um, so check those out. There's uh, one for parents. So it's what you need to know as a parent of a young person who might be watching this. That's also going to be helpful for youth workers and uh, youth leaders. Uh, and then there's one specifically written towards a young audience as well. Um, so check those out, uh, out at selfharm.co.uk. Uh, I, I do want to just come back to the shack because I feel it's a more positive place for us to end this. Well, it's been a culture ramble, which I, I hope will become a, a regular segment on the podcast. Um, but I, I just want to say I did really like the shack. Yeah. I did really like it. And I, I liked it most of all, um, as I said to Stuart on the interview, and as you, um, uh, as you talked about, because it was a piece of culture which ultimately made me, uh, drew me towards Jesus. Mm -hmm. Like, how often can you say that about about a piece of culture that, that it, 
it, every time Jesus came on screen, oh, I was just captivated by him. Yeah. And I don't think that's just about the actor who played him. And I love the idea of culture, which draws us towards Jesus. So we talked about two very different mm -hmm. uh, bits of our culture um, on the podcast today. Um, and, uh, and it's impossible to compare or contrast them. Uh, but I'm, I, I, the one thing I absolutely loved about The Shack was that it, it drew me towards Jesus. Uh, and that's got to be a good thing to say later. Okay, let's play a game. Um, and uh, it's the word game. I'm secretly hoping the word is culture. <laughs> but let's find out from our drop-in, what is the word for the week that we have to work out what it is our young people are meaning. So here we go. Word. 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 Today's word is dank. Dank. Well, this is another one a bit like moist, isn't it? Dank is a, a really unpleasant word. Under the building, isn't it? Uh, yeah, a cellar. A cellar, some, some, something with sort of creeping mould in it. The thing is, what's frustrating me is I totally know this word, but I, I cannot give you a context of what it means. I, no. I hear it all the time. It's dank, man. Dank. And I, I don't know. I think I think it's a bad thing. I think it's something that's not good. So I think like, oh, dank. So maybe if somebody like has got like that, they they pick their nose or some it's, it's something like body secretion or something. Like, like they've got sweat pits on. But I don't know. It's a bit something that's really bad. Like oh, right. dank. And something that's really bad in kind of a socially unacceptable way. Mm. So it's not a bad thing, but something that is a bit like gross. So put it in a sentence. I feel really dank oh. up in this tower. It's so hot up here. Okay. I'm dank. Mm. Yeah. I just put some deodorant on just before we started recording. <laughs> so I, I feel fresh, <laughs> which means something else, but I don't know what. Uh, let's put dank. So I think dank means something positive. Do you? I think dank is when you um, you absolutely ace something. So you, you've like scored uh, like nine goals on FIFA or something. Wow. And like someone just goes... Do you man, know what that man feels your FIFA like? skills are dank. Do you do you know what that feels like to score nine football goals on? No, but yeah. only if I'm playing my three-year-old. Aha, uh -huh. right, okay. Producer Rachel, quick, tell us what is the answer. Dank means uh, very good. It's a positive adjective. This podcast is dank. No! Yes! Yes! Oh, yes! At last! Oh, I'm descending into dankness. At last! <laughs> oh, no, 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 you're not. I'm not. I'm no, you're not. I'm, I'm the winner. I am dank. I can't believe I'm losing. Well, I think that's a great place to end the podcast. Right, okay. <laughs> finally. Finally, I am victorious. Well, it is the culture show. I mean, you are Mr. Culture, aren't you? I am. Uh, well, it, when culture means a type of naan bread, I'm your man. <laughs> so uh, so thanks for listening. Yes. Um, do get in touch. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you change. Podcast at usegate.co.uk. We would genuinely love to hear from you. It sometimes feels like we're just talking to ourselves. And, and actually, if you've seen something or heard something for the next culture episode, like oh, yeah? films or series or music or lyrics or something, just just send it our way. We'd love to have a conversation about what that is. That's a great idea. To us. So, uh, so thank you. And we will hear you. We know. Oh, blah. I was so close, that was really slick, wasn't it? So thank you, and we'll see you again next time. The Youthscape podcast is free, and it always will be free, but you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash youthscape. Just make sure I save that. It's all recorded fine. Got to press the stop button.